Okay. Good morning. Um, Monty, I can't seem to hear you. Can you uh, can you try and say something and do a sound yeah, check? No, I'm, I think everyone else can hear me. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Leah, are you hearing Please other bear people? with us. We just need to figure out the audio. Hi there, Monty. Uh, would you? Oh, yeah, can you I can hear, hear you now. <laughs> <laughs> like a bad cell phone commercial. <laughs> yeah. Um, if we think we have our technical issues resolved. I think we're good to go. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Okay. So, uh, Let's get started. First, I'm going to take roll, and we'll see who's who all's here and uh, establish a quorum. So, Thomas Howe, Thomas Allen, here. Uh, Shannon Reed, here. Rebecca Buford, here. Sarah Waters, here. Christina Gentry. Erica Zimmerman. Here. Dana Ortiz. Here. Shannon Aury. Here. Ron Gacious. Edith Guppy. Here. Monty Soka. Here. That is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine uh, members present, which creates a quorum. So uh, we'll call a meeting to order, and I'm going to ask Leah to read the opening statement, and then we'll get started on the agenda. Thank you, Mr. Chair. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. I'm going to provide a few procedural reminders for the virtual meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and public access cable channel 25. During the meeting, when you're not participating, please mute yourself by clicking on the microphone icon found in the lower left-hand side of the Zoom menu next to the video icon. When you're muted, a red line will appear over the, um, the icon. Muting your microphone during the meeting will make it easier for everyone to hear. You'll just have to remember to unmute if and when you want to speak. In some cases, I may mute or unmute people as needed to minimize distractions during the meeting. Please remember to state your name every time you speak for the benefit of those listening remotely. You can turn your video camera on or off by clicking the video icon in the menu. For the purposes of this public meeting, when you're participating in the meeting, please keep your video on. When you're not participating in the meeting, it's okay to turn your video off. You'll still be able to listen. You'll just have to remember to turn your video back on when you start to participate. Turning your video off when you're not participating will make sure that the active meeting participants can be seen on the screen. In some cases, I may turn someone's video off if they are not actively participating to avoid distractions during the meeting. You can always turn your video back on during the meeting. 
If you're participating by phone, you can click star six to unmute your phone. For those using Zoom, somewhere on your screen, you'll see a choice to toggle between speaker and gallery view. Speaker view shows the active speaker. Gallery view tiles all the meeting participants. Board members and city staff members, you must state your name and title each time you speak. All motions will need to be stated clearly. After a motion is made and seconded, the chair will call on board members individually to provide their vote. Mr. Chair, you will then need to announce whether the motion carried and the count of the vote. When public comment is sought on an item, individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise your hand feature. Windows and Mac users can access this feature through the participants button at the bottom of their screen. Android and iPhone users can access this feature through the more button located at the bottom right hand corner of their spring screen. <laughs> For those calling in my phone, you may dial star nine. Individuals will be called upon by name in the order they appear in the meeting host screen. When you're called on, please unmute your listening device and state your name before speaking. The chair will then call for in-person public comment for those without access to technology options. Staff present will direct, direct you to, to the podium, podium to, speak to speak following social, social distancing, distancing and safety protocols. The regular three-minute time limit will apply. Thank you. All right, this Montague Sokup chair. Thank you, Leah. Um, at this point, we will open for public comment. I'm going to read the public comment thing so everybody knows. Uh, the board will allow public comment on items listed on the agenda. Each person is limited to three minutes for public comment. Members of the public may provide public comment on multiple agenda items. General public comment on items or issues that are not scheduled on the agenda may, may, be, may be made after all regular business of the board has been conducted. Each person will be limited to three minutes for general public comment. That said, is there anyone that in the uh, chamber there or online that would like to make a public comment. So just raise your hand and we'll try to get you up in a position to do so. Mr. Chair, this is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. There's nobody present at City Hall for public comment and I don't see anybody on screen raising their hand. Okay, uh, seeing none, we'll close public comment. Uh, the second agenda item is to approve the minutes from the February 14th meeting. So I would uh, be receptive to a motion to approve or amend or comment on those minutes. Sarah Waters, uh, University of Kansas, motion to approve minutes. Okay. Rebecca Buford, second. All right, so we have a motion to approve the minutes and a second on the floor. Is there any discussion? Seeing none, I will close discussion and take the roll. Uh, I'm going to, again, I'm going to call you in the order we did originally. Uh, so if you'd be ready to remember who you come after and we'll get through this quickly. So Thomas Allen. Approved. Shannon Reed. Approved. Rebecca Buford. Approved. Sarah Waters. Approved. Erica Zimmerman. Approved. Dana Ortiz. Approved. Shannon Aury. Approved. Uh, Edith Guppy. Approved. Monty Soka. Approved. Motion passes 9-0. Okay. We're on to the regular agenda items. We have a corporation for supported housing presentation. Um, 
Hi, uh, that's me and my colleague. Hi, Kim Keaton and my colleague, um, Katrina von Falkenberg. We do have some slides. Um, we sent them in advance uh, last week. I've made one small change just on the agenda. I just put our names. Um, so I, if you don't mind, can I go ahead and share my screen? This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. You should be able to go ahead and share a screen, but let me know if there's a problem. Uh, looks looks good. It was disabled, but now it's going. Okay, great. All right. Go into slideshow mode. Great. So uh, this is Kim Keaton uh, from Corporation for Supportive Housing. Thank you for inviting us here today. I see a lot of familiar names and faces from our work in um, Douglas County. Uh, which I'm going to talk to you about a little bit um, today. And so um, uh, we have been um, lucky enough to have contracted with Douglas County uh, starting in September of last year to do a supportive housing needs assessment. Um, today's presentation, I will at the end of it go through sort of what that what that project is, but we're going to start by setting some baselines around um, just, you know, the core tenets of supportive housing. If most people here probably know what that is, but it's always good to sort of level set and get everyone on the same page. Um, talk about what it can look like in a community. Um, talk about overview of some of the funding sources um, and then some regional examples. But first, some in introductions. So as I said, Kim Keaton, I'm the Director of Data and Analytics for um, CSH. CSH is a national nonprofit, but I'm one of two staff located in Kansas. Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and so I do work all over the country, but I've been privileged to be able to do work close to my home with this project. And I'll let my colleague Katrina introduce herself. Good morning. I'm Katrina Van Valkenburg, and I'm the managing director for the central region at CSH. So I oversee all our work in the center of the country. Um, so I get to keep up on uh, what's happening in Kansas. Thank you for having us today. Uh, so just quickly about CSH, as I said, we're a national nonprofit, um, about 145 staff and growing if you were to check out our jobs page <laughs> right now. Um, and a lot, a lot to do in the housing department and a lot of work to be done. Um, our mission is to improve the lives of vulnerable people, maximize public resources and build strong, healthy communities. We believe that housing with support services can help build strong, uh, healthy communities and that where people thrive in the community. Um, so I'm going to turn over to Katrina. She's going to set the stage for supportive housing. And I can just advance the slides, Katrina. Oh, wonderful. Thanks so much, Kim. Yeah, we'd love to chat with you a little bit about supportive housing. Just make sure we're all kind of having the same understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about supportive housing. So when we talk about supportive housing, we're really talking about affordable housing um, that has services attached to it. And it's permanent housing is what we're we are um, focused on is permanent affordable housing that have services that really assist the tenants in addressing whatever their needs are. Um, and so uh, this is really the core description of supportive housing. Um, can I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Sure. Can, 
Are people seeing like a dark screen or yep. can you actually it's see all the slide? gray, Kim. This is yeah, so weird. it's not showing the actual slide. What if you go to the next slide? Will it show you the next one? Oh, you oh, know what? Here it, it goes. Was, it's, it's got on uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Great. Um, and when we think about supportive housing, one of the things that makes it different from affordable housing is it's really focused on people who face the most complex challenges. Um, and so that uh, often we're looking at who are folks who can't even get into affordable housing and who are the folks that once they get into affordable sometimes end up getting evicted and how do we use services to get people into housing and then help them stay there once they're there. So we're often talking about people who have experienced homelessness, people who um, have mental health challenges, substance use issues, things like that that have created, uh, have made it difficult for them to maintain housing in the past. And really with this idea of how do we create stability so that we want it to be permanent autonomy, that people have control over their own lives and that it's housing that has dignity. You can go to the next one, Kim. Um, and so we, we do supportive housing in different ways. So it can be done as a single site, right? Like it can be a single building or a single property that can be either 100% supportive housing or it can be affordable housing that has a little bit of supportive housing or it could be market rate housing that has a little supportive housing. There are lots of different ways, but one way is doing it in one building. And then another way that we do it sometimes is in a scattered site model. And that's often a leased model rather than a development model where there may be a landlord who says, yes, I would like to rent to your tenants. So um, I'm going to uh, dedicate X number of units in my housing, or you may just go out and rent unit by unit by unit. This is a pretty common model of supportive housing, especially with HUD funds um, that are more more of a rental kind of uh, model. And uh, we can also develop supportive housing in a number of different ways. So one is we can do new construction or new development where we build a whole building um, or we can do rehab. There may be a building in the community that's perfect for um, using for supportive housing. It might be an, a historic building. It could be it's just a building that's available on the market. Um, but that's another way, either new construction or rehab as uh, ways that we approach supportive housing development. And then the third way is a master lease model. And that's where you're not building it. You're not doing the development part, but you're going to a landlord and maybe with a landlord, somebody who owns a building says, I'll rent you 10 units in this property and you rent all 10 of those units, whoever the sponsor is. So it could be a nonprofit, it could be government, somebody rents those units and then they lease those units to the tenants who live in them. So that's kind of the three different models we often see with supportive housing development, either building it new, rehabbing it or master leasing if there's enough housing in the community. And the model you use depends so much about the community, right? Like if you have very little rental stock, um, 
master leasing just isn't a good way to go. If you, um, but if you have a lot of available land, new development may be the way to go. Or if you have buildings that are underutilized or available, rehab may be the way to go. So it really depends on what works and is needed in particular communities. And the same with size of properties, right? Like your supportive housing project could be six units, it could be 10 units, it could be 100 units. It's really what's the context for the community you're building it in? How is it like the other properties that you have in your community? On the master lease option, are you typically leasing at market rate or are you leasing trying to lease below market rate? How does that work? I mean, if I'm a property well, owner and I'm interested. Yeah, it's a good question. No? Yeah, I think most often you're leasing at market rate um, because you're most often master leasing using resources like um, HUD funding that will pay for operating that allows you to pay market rate. Now, um, fair, fair market rate, fair market rate. Right. Not yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then the other part though is your tenants, because your tenants typically in supportive housing are at 30% and below area median income, they're very poor. They're considered extremely low income um, by housing finance agencies and by HUD. Um, so that you need to have some kind of operating subsidy of some sort, whether it's a housing choice voucher or it's operating funds from HUD that allow you to both pay the rent on the unit that the landlord can use keep the unit in good shape. At the same time, that's the rent's low enough for the tenant that they can pay their portion of the rent. Okay, thank you. Sure. It also helps to um, add a layer of guarantee to the unit. Uh, if people, for example, have criminal background histories that um, would normally, or evictions in their past that would normally make a, a landlord nervous, um, this app provides an extra layer of sort of assurance that the rents can right. be paid to landlords. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that other uh, extra level of assurance is the services that the tenant's receiving so that the landlord also knows there's someone who's working with the tenant, you know, if problems arise. That becomes so important, you know, um, when we think about supportive housing and what supportive housing is able to do because of its structure, what makes it different from other housing. Um, so like when we think about on this list of key components of supportive housing, number five is coordinates among key partners. And part of that is how in supportive housing, supportive services and um, property management work really closely together with the same goal of keeping the tenant housed, making sure rent's paid and the tenant stays housed. And in a master leasing model, that would be that coordination between the service partner and the landlord or the building owner of that property. Um, but other kind of key components of supportive housing is, you know, it's really based on this idea of engaging households with multiple barriers. So, um, 
we're really looking at those individuals who have not been able to make it in affordable housing and using services as the key with affordable housing to help create a successful housing opportunity for people. So they may be folks who have been in our shelters for a long time. They may be cycling from shelter to emergency room. Um, they may be individuals with mental health or substance use issues. They could be families who are at risk of losing children to child welfare or have lost children to child welfare and need housing and stability to regain um, a custody of their children, or could be folks who are exiting jail or prison, uh, especially individuals exiting jail and prison with mental health or substance use issues that were really part of what got them there in the first place. And how do we use housing with services to really get people into housing by reducing the barriers of entry and then how we provide services to keep them housed once they're there. And then again, this affordability issue, we don't want tenants to pay more than 30% of their incomes for rent. But we also know that we need that our um, tenants uh, don't have much income. You know, they're typically 30% and below area median income. Um, and so we need some kind of subsidy, operating subsidy of some sort to help make up that difference. And then we want in supportive housing for it to be housing first. Um, so we want it to be that a tenant has both the rights and the responsibilities of a leaseholder. And so the lease that we use in supportive housing should look like the lease that's used in any other type of housing. And when we think about the services that we're providing to tenants, we want them to be flexible and voluntary. And it's really this idea of how do we provide services to tenants that are the services they want and the services they need? And how are we as the staff and supportive housing responsive to the tenants around how we provide services and ensuring that what we provide is something that they want to to use in their own lives. Um, we are very focused on a housing first model. So we wanna reduce all those barriers to get people into housing. We wanna get people into housing as quickly as possible and then wrap these services around them. So once they're in housing, they can stay housed. Um, but we don't wanna put up a lot of extra uh, barriers on the front end for them to get into the housing. And then we want to think about all the ways we connect with the community when we think about supportive housing. And that can be things from making sure uh, tenants can get connected to like uh, mental health supports in the community or faith communities, whether they want to belong to a church or a synagogue or a mosque. But what are the things that really add um, value to to the lives of the tenants and how do we help them connect to the community? So it's not only what's happening in our buildings, but also how our buildings are connected. And in the same way, we wanna think about how we're a good neighbor as a property. So how are our staff connected to our neighbors, to community meetings? How are we participating in the life of the community? That also becomes part of what we think about when we think about the key components of supportive housing. 
So there are different ways that we fund supportive housing, but basically funding falls into these three buckets. Uh, one is capital or development funding, then operating funding and services funding. So if you're going to build it, whether you're doing new construction or you're doing a rehab project, you'll need capital funding or financing um, to really build the build the property and the most common form of financing for affordable housing in the United States is low-income housing tax credits. Some people refer to it as LIPEC, but it's low-income housing tax credits. Um, it funds more affordable housing than any other source uh, in the United States. Low-income housing tax credits falls into two categories, 9% credits and 4% credits. Supportive housing most typically is funded with what are called 9% credits. 4%, um, you have to have a lot of soft financing to go with it. And so it's much harder to use. Um, it's not impossible though. We see some projects that get funded with 4% credits, but most typically when people are talking about low-income housing tax credits, they're talking about 9% credits. The other source that is very common in supportive housing is home dollars. Um, this is federal money that gets flows through to participating jurisdictions. So your community may get be a participating jurisdiction. Your state is a participating jurisdiction and home money flows through to participating jurisdictions and then can be used for supportive housing. The big opportunity right now across the country is that there's um, under the American Rescue Act uh, Plan Act, there's uh, home dollars that are dedicated to people at risk at who are homeless and at risk of homelessness. So there's a lot more home money currently that can be used for developing supportive housing. So it's a great opportunity right now to use that to create units. And then there's the National Housing Trust Fund. And I don't know if you have a state housing trust fund or a local housing trust fund, but sometimes there are also the state or local ones or other public sources you can use for capital financing. But these are the most typical sources. You know, occasionally you'll see like some CDBG money or something like that in a supportive housing project. It's not as common, but things like we see that occasionally. Then when it comes to operating, this is that piece that funds the difference between what the tenant can pay and what the landlord or the property owner needs to keep the building operating well. Because if you, the rents are too low, there isn't enough income for the landlord or the building owner to do the rehab on the units as needed to keep them in good shape over time. So they need to have a fair market rent to be able to keep their building up and tenants need a low rent level um, because if they're 30% of area median income, that means they're extremely low income. And then we don't want them to have to pay more than 30% of their income in rent. So we need something that covers the difference between what the fair market rent is for a unit and what the tenant can pay. The most common places we find this is in uh, through continuums of care. So continuums of care have the HUD funding that comes through dedicated to um, addressing homelessness in communities. And so that's a really common place to find operating funds for supportive housing. The other one that we see, and this is much more typical, especially with um, 
projects that are funded with low income housing tax credits is funding through housing authorities, especially housing choice vouchers, because they can be project based and um, housing finance agencies who have the low income housing tax credits really need to have a guarantee of funding over time for operating and project basing housing choice vouchers is a really is key to um, uh, being able to secure low income housing tax credits. And then there are sometimes state programs, though there aren't any currently in Kansas that you can use for operating funds. On the service funding side, there are a few options that we see most typically. One is again, the continuum of care and getting services through the service funding through the continuum of care. Again, it's HUD dollars that flow through to the continuum of care. It could be community mental health centers or CMHCs that the community mental health centers have funding and they're able to support um, tenants in supportive housing with that funding. And then there are other federal sources like SAMHSA um, that can sometimes support services and supportive housing. Um, and then in some states, though not in Kansas, we see state Medicaid plan waivers that pay for housing tenancy supports. Um, and that can be a great resource as well. Um, and then philanthropy usually is filling gaps between some of the funding, um, sometimes in all three of these different supportive housing funding uh, types. So there are a couple of projects that are uh, close to home. One is Eileen's Place in Wyandotte County, which is 100% supportive housing for families. This one used uh, Kansas's low income housing tax credits, the 9% credits. And Actually, that's a, oh. that's a typo, it should be 4%. Oh, they use 4%. They did use with, 4%, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, cool. With National Housing Trust Fund dollars. Um, and then you can see the other project is a project, um, Allhaven in Kansas City, Missouri, which has 50 units. And of those, this is a what we call um, integrated supportive housing project where it's a mix of supportive housing and affordable. So in this project, 12 units are supportive housing and 48 units are affordable. Um, and this one used uh, low income housing tax credits, the 9% out of Missouri. And just to add, um, one of the things that, uh, you know, in our conversations with our, the people we've been working with in, in Douglas County and Lawrence is, um, you know, a couple of challenges seen in the community, one around low vacancy rates due to being a college town and yeah. another around um, some zoning issues. And, you know, CSH, we're not exactly like the zoning issue, um, you know, housing, co affordable housing code, like experts, but just so, so you can sort of place these two projects within the context of the places that they're in, they are, definitely located in areas of um, Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri that have single family homes that have apartments that are, you know, have all the all the types of housing that we see in cities. Um, you know, in um, the case of Allhaven, it's, um, you know, right, it's right on 31st Street 
in Midtown, Area 31st near Truce. So it's in a, a transportation corridor near where the bus lines operate, not far from um, where this the streetcar is going to be extended down, you know, through. So it's it's a really, um, you know, it's they're located in areas of the city that both have you know, services, but also are near to where lots of other people live. So just wanted to, to sort of point that out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, any questions before we move on to the local, the local needs that we've been working on? All right, then I'll dive right oh, in. I think Rebecca has a question. Okay, so I can't see everybody because I'm, I'm sure I'm yeah. sorry. I should have jumped in. Rebecca Buford with Tenants to Homeowners. Um, how many units are at Eileen's place? And can you speak to, it, it doesn't seem very common that 100% of supportive service housing or or what are the factors you need to think about when you do 100%? Hmm. Um, I'd say, no, yeah, oh, it's good. sorry. I think it's 100 units um, and they're, they're kind of duplex, you know, like they're, you could see in the picture, like, you know, each of these, buildings has um, duplexes that are sort of right next, you know, to each other. And so they're, they feel like little houses. Like there's like two bedrooms upstairs and a bedroom downstairs, you know, uh, sort of kitchen, living room type of thing. Um, you know, the, um, the reality is for, I'll, I'll say something and then I'm sure Katrina will build on it, but um, you know, hundred percent, it, it's not as common as it used to be, I guess. Um, I think one of the things you have to um, really make sure you have that's really strong in a hundred percent building, like as big as this is really strong property management partner um, that is, you know, really managing the units and the quality of the units and like sort of all the things that a, a large property has and that that's really distinct from the support services. I think in my Aileen's place, they're done by Metro Lutheran Ministries, which is uh, on either side of the state line over here. Um, the other thing I'll say is quite frankly, from like a budgeting standpoint, these mixed affordable or mixed market rate with some supportive is easier to sort of pencil out, right? Um, you need a lot of services for a hundred families. <laughs> so I don't know what yeah, you want to add. I yeah, I think when uh, supportive housing started, you know, in the beginning of the nineties, really, um, we were seeing a hundred percent supportive housing projects. And then I think in, in the two thousands that started, we started seeing more integrated supportive housing. My guess is we're about 50% of new units are integrated, 50% are a hundred percent supportive housing, but it really depends on the community, what kind of resources you have, you know, um, if your goal is to create more supportive housing quickly, it's easier to do it with 100% units. If you're looking for more community integration, you know, integrated supportive housing may be uh, the, the approach you want. You know, I think most communities have a combination of them. 
uh, so that, you know, there may be people who, who let's say you're using coordinated entry from your continuum of care to fill units. Um, it may be there are some people who feel like they would prefer to be in a unit that's a, in a 100% supportive housing building. And there may be others who are like, I'd really prefer to be in an integrated supportive housing project. Uh, I, have a, I have a question. Um, were both of these uh, rehabs or was one built specifically as supportive housing and the other one was rehab? How did you do that? I think these they're are, both new construction, yeah. right, Kim? Yeah, these ones are, are both brand new. Um, in Kansas City um, area, we have a lot of new construction rather than rehab because we have a lot of land kind of here. Um, and so like I know that there's one coming up on Jackson and um, 39th Street. That's like one of those big tracks of blocks that probably had houses in the past that all got you know demoed into the basement. And that's gonna be all new construction as well. We just have a lot of that here. So that's that's what we see. Uh, here mostly, yeah. Yeah, and I think often it's what's the opportunity? You know, do you have property to rehab that would work well and you could do it at around the same price per square foot you could with new construction? You know, it it really depends on what your housing stock's like for that and whether it's an opportunity or not to do rehab versus new construction. Um. The organization that uh, run that developed and, and runs um, All Haven Save Inc. They have quite a, a large number of I mean for Kansas City a, a large number of properties, mm -hmm. and um, some of them are just like duplexes like that are were already existing apartments. Um, that the organization owns. And I think they finally sold off their last duplex, but their regular apartment buildings, they weren't built for supportive housing. But at some point in the organization's history, they acquire the building and, and use it for supportive housing. So I think All Haven might be their first new construction. It even. is. Yeah. yeah. In a long time. Um, I think yeah. they're the, in maybe 25 years. So yeah. Great questions. Really appreciate them. Um, the I, th I believe Eileen's place falls into this. I know um, CSH did a, a supportive housing institute last year um, that reached across both sides of the state line in the metro area up here. And um, um, on the Wyandotte side, uh, the organizations were going for properties um, that were in the, the land bank. Um, yeah, so, you know, that's, the, the county, the unified government owns quite a bit of land that then they they will go into um, agreements with for, you know, if the if the development includes, you know, these kinds of things like services and, and um, affordable supportive housing. I hate to be tacky, uh, but, you know, I grew up in that area uh, in Kansas City, Missouri. So what's the plan to keep it from becoming run down kind of like the area where no one wants to live eventually. You know, Edith, <laughs> that's a really good question. I live in Hyde Park 
Um, and, you know, and I think that um, we see a lot of, I, you know, All Haven has not been without community um, pushback. And the, you know, SAVE and Inc. developed it alongside Vicino Group with the partnership of Vicino Group. And, um, and they got a lot of community pushback because people live in neighborhoods that they feel like they've, and, and rightly so, have reclaimed that formerly didn't, people didn't want to live there, but now they do. And they're worried about, um, you know, these, I use quotes around these people coming to live in our community. And there's a lot of education that, that goes into, um, you know, understanding that we all have a right to live everywhere in the community and that certain areas aren't designated for one kind of person or the other. Um, the other thing I would say about uh, these properties is, as you can see, they're really nice. Um, they're landscaped, et cetera. And the, um, the agreements for the LIHTC units are, are like 30 years. I mean, there's 15 years and then and it goes out to 30. So it's a long time before it has the potential to be turned into sort of market rate housing. Um, and so that's, I guess, if there's any plan, like that's it. And there are, there, you know, there is an attempt to make sure that they're not all located in one area, right? Um, that were that were scattering this type of housing throughout the city, you know, from an equitable equity standpoint. Although I will say, quite a few happen to be located in the sort of 27th and down to 31st and Troost corridor. Um, there's a lot of of land there and a lot of um, a lot of service providers that are actually building just more housing, like on their kind of near where they already have their services. So. So Kim, this is Shannon. Um, so the the real problem I see is that um, all of the funding mechanisms that are available, we are already using for another type of affordable housing. So we use all of our home fund allocation for TBRA for homeless and our local Chodo first time home buyer. Um, all of our vouchers, you know, we are at 98, 99% utilized. So I don't have a huge margin of vouchers to, I mean, I, I mean, really we don't, our vacancy is our turnover. And so there aren't vouchers to put into units. And so when I see these issues, I, I just look at it and go, the only way to really fund some of this is to, you know, Rob Peter, the low income, you know, tenant to pay Paul, the homeless tenant and who needs supportive housing. And I just always constantly feel like we're being torn between all needy partners and, and community members. I would certainly help if there was more to go around. <laughs> I get that for sure. Uh, go ahead, Katrina. I was just going to say the home, um, uh, the American Rescue Plan Act home dollars are new resources that are really have to be dedicated to people who are homeless or at risk of homelessness. So there is some new funding and those capital dollars um, could be used on the front end 
um, for sure. Well, and that's, you know, I mean, this is a good segue into the next part of the presentation because that's certainly what Douglas County is trying to do. I think, you know, to recognize Shannon's concern is, you know, okay, if we build this housing, the housing authority feels pretty strapped as far as how to pay for for um, some of the units, you know, certainly wouldn't be all on the housing authority. Some will come through the HUD continuum of care, the balance state continuum of care um, and other opportunities. So I'm gonna move on in the interest of time. Um, and then just so we can leave some discussion on the back end, if that's okay. All right. Um, so uh, CSH was approached last summer by Bob Triansky and Jill Jollicker at um, the county um, for precisely the reason I was just saying. They felt they were they had a unique opportunity to put capital dollars into supportive housing uh, specifically because of what you just said, Shannon, with a lot of the priorities being around first-time home buyers and affordable. Um, you know, the rightly the home are funding is um, specifically for at risk and, and homeless households and, and this felt like a unique opportunity. Um, and so in working with them, we established some goals um, for assessing the need for supportive housing in Douglas County across a variety of sectors. So, you know, everyone who, who hears about or works with the homeless continuum of care, you hear about chronically homeless and by nameless. Um, I think we all recognize that there are uh, multiple systems that feed into the homeless system or that if folks were exited from, they would be really at risk of homelessness, long-term homelessness. So, um, so with that in mind, we identify data from multiple systems to inform the needs assessment and financial modeling. Um, we've been working with community stakeholders to refine model assumptions and identify critical sectors um, and conduct financial modeling to determine basically how much all this is going to cost. Um, and so uh, the goal is to create recommendations on the total need by unit type, which is also household type, singles versus families, um, and um, intervention, uh, system efficiently efficiency improvements to reduce uh, inflow. Um, that uh, is something that um, the kinds of things that there's another TA provider uh, also doing a homeless system gaps analysis at the Center for uh, Public Partnerships and Research. I always forget what the CPPR app uh, acronym stands for at KU, um, did a, a needs assessment of the homeless system at the same time as we did this. So they're really coming up with a lot of that part of it and um, different development models to meet the need. So that goes back to single site, um, you know, affordable, uh, mixed, you know, Seattle site, et cetera. And, um, you know, we've been seeking strategic direction and feedback from um, stakeholders through this community facilitation process. We've been attending the housing and homeless stakeholder meeting every couple of weeks and updating on progress. Um, so three primary types of data have been taken into account. Um, data, first data about how many people are accounted for. Uh, sorry, this, I have to read reduce nice window here there, in assessed systems. Um, data about which share of people have needs consistent with supportive housing. That goes back to what Katrina talked about earlier, who is supportive housing for, um, people with um, 
quite often co-occurring conditions such as mental mental health, uh, substance use, um, physical health, and um, are in you know potentially other types of um, issues as well. Um, who would need would prevention of supportive housing, um, and then data about local costs uh, related to bringing supportive housing uses, units online, operating them, and providing services. Um, when we do uh, this methodology, I should say, is based on a national needs assessment that CSH has done. Um, if you're interested in looking at our state-by-state -state, uh, national one, it's on our website at csh.org slash data. You can actually um, download the numbers for the state of Kansas, the estimates for the state of Kansas, if you'd like, or you can take a look at those. But um, when we do the work, you know, when we do work in local communities like Douglas County, we're taking local data and adapting them, um, the methodology that we use nationally to local data. So we may include all sorts of um, uh, sources from around the county and all the different uh, types of systems. Um, when we uh, were kind of identifying the populations of interest, um, we definitely heard that families uh, involved in child welfare who were experiencing homelessness were a key concern, um, as well as people with behavioral health challenges, uh, folks exiting um, prison and the Douglas County Jail, um, that there are uh, a number of folks that um, are in nursing homes that could be you know the nursing homes. There's basically no nursing home capacity. Many people in nursing homes um, might might actually be more successful in the community. Um, and then um, juvenile justice, which was a really tiny number, and then also develop uh, the IDD population that there's not um, a lot of capacity in the community there. Um, just a reminder, you know. We take a CSH takes a multi-sector approach because we know that individuals and families who are in housing crisis touch a variety of systems besides the housing homeless system. Um, focusing only on one system can hide the needs for supportive services that are that are present in other systems where that are not equipped to solve housing crises. So, a good example of that is uh, a correctional facility or. Uh, uh, um, Child welfare foster care agency. The critical issue may be that the person is homeless that caused them to be involved in either of those systems, but those systems aren't set up to uh, to actually solve for that issue. And so, um, a multi-sector approach lets us think about needs for supportive housing across systems and lets us use housing as a stabilization platform for people with diverse needs. Um, uh, when we do this work, we attempt to um, to reduce the you know counting people who might be bouncing around by by narrowing the data that we request to a small point of time in this case we focused on july to september of 2021 when we were talking to local stakeholders such as Bert, Bert nash family promise deca etc so mm -hmm. go ahead ron you're on mute buddy I heard the excuse me and then it went silent. Ron, you're on Ron, mute. You're, you're on mute. <laughs> uh, Ron Gacious, AHAB board member, chamber representative. Um, you spoke about the many sectors that you're touching mm -hmm. and described how 
the individuals and the families you're supporting are coming from many different um, parts of society. Um, and, and you're talking about all of the other different service platforms that you come in contact with. I still don't understand what role, I mean, what's a day in the life of the supportive services person look like? I still don't understand what you do. I see who you're talking to. I see the data you're collecting, but, but what are you doing with these families? Are you at the table helping them with a monthly budget? Are you taking them to appointments? Are you introducing, are you making sure they show up for a parole officer meeting? Are you making sure, are you, are, are you, you know, are you badgering them into whatever the society response? That's a horrible word. I take it back. I mean, but what are, are you, you are you asking what CSH is doing? Yes. What what is the supportive services component doing as it touches all of these different service systems on behalf of the individual or the family? I, I think you, I think you have a role. Is it a connector role? Are you service providers yourself? No. Uh, let me try and clarify our CSH's role. We're do we did a supportive housing needs assessment. We're not in the community working with clients. We're working with people. Uh, I'm not talking your agency. My question is not about your agency. I'm talking about the the supportive services model that you've described. Mm -hmm. you yeah, know, so Ron had dollars come from our housing trust fund to support supportive services. Mm -hmm. What are they paying for? Sure. So the services and supportive housing uh, depends a little bit on who the tenant is, but it almost always is done through, I'm going to call it a case management model, but where a family or an individual has a staff person who provides the services. Um, and there are different models for that. But basically, it's many of those things you said, right? It may be somebody needs help with budgeting. It may be that um, they uh, talk to them when they're having a hard time. It may be they're connecting them to mental health services in the community. It may be they're offering groups or other things like that. Um, but the services are really um, whatever the tenant needs uh, to be successful. So most often it's uh, kind of um, sort of uh, support, like a mental health kind of support, though not technically counseling, um, and also helping tenants problem solve when they run into problems. So, you know, one of the common things that happens in, in supportive housing is that, um, that uh, a tenant may fall behind in rent. So one of the things the service person will do is help them problem solve. How can they correct this issue? How can they figure it out? So a lot of that is the staff kind of walking with the tenant to help them become more successful. Um, it could be connecting them with mental health services or substance use services in the community. It could be running a group in the supportive housing. It could be helping with budgeting. It's really very global and really based on what the individual needs. The other, the other thing I would point out too is um, the population that were that are often benefit from supportive housing. You know, they're they're different than than those that um, 
fundamentally would just would benefit from affordable housing, could go to their job or jobs in the community, make their rent and live live life successfully. Um, you know, when you talk about some, uh, for example, a young person who's uh, grown up mostly in foster care, potentially was incarcerated for a period of time, experienced homelessness, when they move into a unit for the first time, it may be the first time they've ever used a stove. It may be the first time they've ever even gone grocery shopping because they've experienced such institutionalization. And so some of the services, particularly uh, right after move-in, are really focused on helping that person become stable in housing, uh, helping that person understand the responsibilities of a tenant, um, how to be a good neighbor, how to pay your rent on time, how to budget, as Katrina said, how to shop, how to safely live in a unit, use the use the stove, uh, adjust the heat, use the water, you know, all that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, it's, it's really, built upon what the person actually needs and what's identified as their need by the service provider. I hope that helps. Very much, thank you. Okay. This is, hi, this is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, I have a comment and a question um, to Mr. Geisha's question. Um, Burt Nash is a local organization that is looking to um, develop a new supportive permanent affordable housing project. And I was going to say that we could invite Matthew Falk from Burt Nash to speak more specifically about the supportive services they offer, if that would be of interest to any AHAB members uh, to get more specificity on what local services are provided. Um, and then there was a question that came through the chat. May we, uh, the question is, may we know how their model is permanent supportive housing while renting from landlords? So is the housing permanent to the person being housed? So I think the question is, if it's a private landlord, how can we guarantee that it's permanent? Well, I think if um, in that situation, if a landlord wanted to not renew a lease, then the, the sponsor who was master leasing, they would look for a new unit that the the tenant could move into so that they'd all they remained housed even if their landlord changed. Yeah, the the when we say permanent in that regard, um, the 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 like much like you know, Shannon or at the housing authority, like the um the vouchers that are attached to people, it's the source of funding that's permanent. Right, and so that's what you're able to use, you know, ideally to move to move someone if that if it comes to that. It's a good question. Great. Any more questions before we move on? Um, so one of the things I like best about uh, working in a place like Douglas County is that, um, you know, when that the when we look at the needs across all these systems, uh, what we the number we have reached is 381 units of permanent supportive housing are needed. That feels like a really solvable problem. Um, you know, contrast that to the two million that are needed. You know, or 1.5 million that are needed nationally. It feels that Douglas County and Lawrence could potentially really really move the needle if some, you know, key things fall into place and some key barriers. And I know there are barriers locally around new developments, um, 
and and also around finding units for a scattered site uh, if we're able to work through some of those. And so uh, this is the the permanent supportive housing need that we calculated across these different systems. Um, that includes people experiencing chronic homelessness, um, uh, families involved in the child welfare system, transition age youth, that's like that 18 to 25 age range, um, the justice system, so that's people exiting the jail as well as exiting prisons into Douglas County. Some great data available from the reentry task force on that. Um, intellectual and developmental disabilities, behavioral health and aging. Um, so the next steps we're taking is calculating the cost per unit and over time. So with some input from um, local stakeholders, including um, the Rebecca over at Tenants to Homeowners, we've, um, you know, we'll be calculating what that unit production looks like over five years. Five years is the time period that the county wants us to look over. Sometimes when we do these things, we look over 10 years, but given the urgency of the resources available, we're, we're shortening that unit production timeline. Um, assuming that the current state with Hallmark dollars is a unique opportunity to obtain uh, usually rare capital funding for this population and brainstorming on next steps on um, ob obtaining sustainable uh, operating and services funding, recognizing the challenges in those two areas. These are um, the per unit uh, costs that we'll be basing all of our calculations off of. Um, and so for uh, one bedroom unit, capital cost per unit being 175,000. If that seems like a lot to you uh, in places like Chicago and Portland, Oregon and New York City, it's well over 500,000 per unit. So, um, so just so you know, uh, it seems like a lot to me. And then I remember that those other places have the most insane housing costs. So, um, so that's that. Um, the operating um, cost per unit per year is based on fair market rent uh, and um, you know that HUD publishes and you know, that's what uh, you know is usually um, you know vouchers that are that are allocated by the housing authority or paid for through the HUD continuum of care are pegged to. Uh, we're finalizing the report on this um, actually next, this week. Been working on it actively um, and creating recommendations to present to county commissioners in our working meeting on um, 323. That's next Wednesday. Um, you know, we've re received um, the capital project list that the county is working on and we'll be incorporating those current projects into um, what's already being planned for development locally to go towards that 381 unit figure. Um, and then we'll also be including some ideas around national, um, what CSH views as national best practices or leading, leading edge practices for uh, closing operating and service funding gaps. Um, you know, some ideas there, flexible funds that um, are used to pay for these, these operating and service funding gaps. They're usually a blend of philanthropy plus public funding. Um, 
uh, that use uh, pay for performance style uh, contracting, um, project-based vouchers and other partnerships with the housing authority, uh, partnerships potentially with mental health centers and FQHCs, and then potential for other uh, local and state funding. And that was it. So, you know, uh, just in terms of where we are, like I said, um, we're giving a draft of the report and recommendations and discussing it next week. And then after that, we'll be finalizing based on input and feedback and um, uh, from, from the county and the commissioners and moving it, moving it out into the community. So Kim, this is Shannon uh, Allery with the Housing Authority. On that, on the pie chart where you break out the different groups, uh-huh. In your final report, will you attach numbers to those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Either this is just for the... Or, yeah. or number of people, please? Yes, we will have it in a table, actually. So Right. Thank yeah. you. And it'll be broken out by size of unit as well. So, um, and family type or household type, rather. So, yes. Kim, Perfect. this is Rebecca Buford with Tenants to Homeowners. What, can you speak to when you say aging, um, can you define that as far as supportive service housing or is that just truly aging in place at that point or is there a little bit different definition there? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, that population, I will speak on it and I will let Katrina expand on it. This is not a population that is my personal area of expertise, but it can be both. Um, it, you know, one thing that we see is that there are people who had affordability challenges in uh, in the community who are in nursing homes, but don't, but might not need to be. So with subsidized housing plus some support services, they could successfully age in the community. Um, and then, um, and then in terms of supportive housing, you know. Um, that is adapted for seniors. There are some special considerations as far as, you know, how accessible units are and things like that. Yeah. Trina, do you want and, to add to that? Sure. And, you know, I think the other piece with aging is that uh, the crossover between homelessness and aging, uh, you know, we see a lot of people as they age fall into homelessness. Um, and at the same time, among the population of individuals who have been homeless a long time, they die very young. Um, you know, overall, so that uh, when we think about aging and homeless population, we think of it starting at 55 uh, because uh, people die at least a decade younger than the general population if they've been living in shelters and on the street for a long time. So we do a lot of thinking at CSH about aging and how it's impacting um, homelessness and how to use housing as health care. Um, in general, but also for folks who are aging, how to keep people alive longer uh, because they're so at risk. Well, and and one, this is, sorry, this is Shannon Alry again, uh, Housing Authority. Uh, one issue that I don't see talked about that, but because we have, we house so many um, of the senior population is uh, dementia and yeah. some issues that start coming along that actually require us to provide supportive housing to allow people to age in place. And 
and the fact that there's nowhere for them to go. I mean, we say we're independent living, but but really many of our units are independent living with a lot of help from living aids or people who are there to allow the people to stay in the units. Yeah. And I, I don't see that number, like I, I can generate that number, but what I don't know is what's out there um, in that population. Mm-hmm. Kim um, and Katrina, thank you so much for, this is Shannon Reed, uh, Douglas County Commission representative. Um, I'm excited to have a preview of this before our work session next week. Um, oh, good. <laughs> so lots of um, things for me to think through more before then. Um, I'm just curious about this pie chart. I'm surprised at how um, large the intellectual and developmental disabilities population is represented. I, that wasn't something I was expecting. So I'm just curious if you can speak a little bit to um, maybe definitions or examples of the type of supportive housing for those folks. So I'm thinking of like CLO once had a big presence and lots of homes where um, there was staff living in, well, there were different degrees, staff living in the homes with folks um, in co-living situations or staff that would come regularly or maybe live next door in a duplex situation. Mm -hmm. So are there other particular examples? I'm just I don't know. I'm just surprised to see how large that is and wondering if there's anything glaring yeah. that, that jumps out. I could speak to the to the, the conversation that we had. I think Katrina can talk a little bit more about the model for that population. But um, but I will say, you know, I was surprised by how large that slice of the, the pie is as well. Um, it, you know, in speaking to um, not every, I will say, I want to give major props to Douglas County for wanting to even include this population. Not every local place that we do these needs assessments in uh, is, it has, um, has that, com- that com- population on their radar, right? And so, um, but so that's great. I will say that in speaking to, I forget the name of the agency, I have to apologize for my porous brain, but we talked to a lot of agencies and, um, but they, you know, they acknowledge that um, they do have some units already that are basically like supportive housing, but the, um, the funding levels from the state are so low that they like can't actually serve that many people and they have an issues with retaining staff. So they have to turn some of them back. So that's part of the reason why I think the population is larger than you would than you would see is they're not currently able to 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 use the resources that they have. Um, and then Katrina, can you talk a little bit more about the sure. model and how it might be different? Yeah, I think uh, the model's very similar. I'd say one of the differences is probably we probably see the use of home health aides uh, or attendance in um, in supportive housing that's been developed for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities because so many people also may have um, uh, also have a physical disability that requires much more uh, around um, kind of assistance from attendance so that's uh, 
not uncommon in those units. I think the other thing we really see in this population for folks with supportive housing is the tremendous need for um, how supportive housing for individuals who have been kept at home by aging parents and the parents are getting close to dying and being really uncertain about what the future of their child is. There's a tremendous need for supportive housing connected for those families where they know that um, there's a, a support and there's housing that their child can live in um, after they die. Yeah, this is Shannon Reed again. Thanks for that. That helps me a lot. And I was thinking about, um, well, that exact scenario you just described and how um, maybe sometimes there are people who live in more rural communities and um, and are having difficulty providing services for their adult yeah. children that have stayed at home with them and have some more complicated health issues. Um, and so I was also thinking about um, models of, you know, there are companies that facilitate or, or organizations that facilitate people having those individuals come live with them in their families in their home and so just thinking through like if those are part of the the numbers we are kind of aware of um from places like cottonwood or mosaic or some of those other places that help facilitate those services so um anyway thanks for flushing that out for me a little bit it's a surprising number great any other questions this Monty Soka, uh, Chair. Thank you, Katrina, 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 <laughs> and Kim. I was trying to mix those two together there. Kim uh, Tina. <laughs> we can be, we can be Kim Tina. Kim We're Tina. Fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get tongue tied. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, really good information, and uh, take that into account as we, you know, do our work. So. Thank you. Uh, we really appreciate it being here and all the really thoughtful um, questions that we got really excited for, you know, to get the, the report out there and to, you know, hopefully continue working with Douglas County on as you move through the planning. Thank you. All right. With that, we're going um, to close that subject and we're going to move on to the second uh, item on our agenda, which is the home 2022 allocation discussion. And I, Leah, I think you have, do you have an introduction for this or, or uh, Danny or maybe it's Brad? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, this is Brad Carr. I'm the community development analyst and I'll be handling this item today. Uh, the item before you is uh, your recommendations for the 2022 home allocations. And just as a reminder, you're the recommending board uh, to the city commission who will make the final decision, um, but they will take your recommendations into account. Um, part of the agenda packet, there are links to the applications that were received and also some other documents to help you in your uh, recommendations. And those are a scoring matrix, which is uh, was approved by the city commission. Um, a historical funding, so you can see how uh, home funds have been sent, spent in our community in the past. And then there's also um, a fact sheet uh, just about the home grant in general for uh, those of you that are not specifically familiar with the ins and outs of that program. 
Um, I'm going to go over real quick just some of those for you and the public. Um, the City of Lawrence does receive um, a Home Investment Partnership Program grant annually. So this is our annual grant. Um, I know there was some discussion earlier about the Home ARP funds that the city has received. Um, we're not discussing those at that at this point. Um, those will be a, a totally separate discussion. Um, these are just for our annual grant that we do receive um, from HUD. Um, it's provided as, in a, as a formula grant to eligible state and local governments um, to strengthen the public-private partnership and to expand the supply of decent, safe, and sanitary affordable housing. Um, it is the largest federal block grant to state and local governments designed exclusively to create affordable housing for low-income households in our community. Um, there are specific requirements for eligible activities. And so home funds can be used by the PJ, the participating jurisdiction, and that's the city, to provide um, incentives to develop and support affordable housing. It can be either rental housing or home ownership. Um, and that can be provided through acquisition, including down payment and closing cost assistance to home buyers, new construction, reconstruction, um, or rehabilitation. Um, it, it also can be used to provide tenant-based rental assistance. Uh, another one of these acronyms that we use, that's TBRA. And that is a, a voucher program uh, for getting individuals housed and keeping them housed in a two-year program. Um, there's also eligible activities is to provide uh, reasonable administration costs for us to run the program, um, to provide operating expenses to our local community housing development organizations. Um, another acronym that we use, and that's CHODO, Community Housing Development Organization. We currently do have one of those in Lawrence, and that is tenants to homeowners. And so an eligible activity is to provide um, operating expenses uh, for that organization. And in addition, uh, we are required to reserve at least 15% of the grant goes to that community housing development organization um, for housing to be owned, developed, or sponsored um, for low-income affordable housing. Um, there are, when we're doing any type of capital type rehabilitation, new construction or acquisition, there are um, periods of affordability that are required to be enforced. And so if we are doing uh, rental housing, new construction of rental housing, then that's 20 years. We're required to uh, keep that as that affordable housing unit. And so we do have to place a deed restriction on the property in order to enforce that. Um, and then in home ownership, it depends on the amount of funding that is used uh, for the unit. So if we're just providing um, a down payment and closing costs um, under $15,000, then it's just a five-year period of affordability that the city is required to monitor um, that that unit remains affordable, that only affordable, that only low-income qualifying individuals live in the house. Uh, for more expensive, over uh, 15000 per unit, that would be more of your uh, acquisition or construction uh, type projects, then it can go out to a maximum of, of 15 years that the city is required to monitor that property. Um, we do have uh, our Chodo runs a, a, the local uh, land trust. And so once our period of city required period of affordability takes over, they keep it in that permanent more model. Um, the home requirements at the federal level only require us to monitor it, the city to monitor it for those 15, 5, 15, or 20 years, depending on the type of project.
I'm going to go ahead and uh, share my screen with one of those documents that um, is linked to the on the agenda. And uh, this is a spreadsheet that we've created to help you uh, with your decision and funding recommendations. And so, as you can see this year, uh, we did receive full applications for four different programs uh, from two agencies. Um, the uh, Lawrence Douglas County Housing Authority submitted an application for that transitional tenant-based rental assistance, TBRA, um, in the amount of $300,000 was their request. Um, tenants to homeowners submitted for three different programs. There's that required CHODO set-aside, which is that 15%, that minimum of 15% that uh, we are required to allocate to them. You are allowed to recommend more of that, more than that 15% um, if you so choose. Um, that CHODO operating funds is another project that they applied for funds for, and that one has a maximum that you can award, and that's 5% um, of the total grant. You cannot award more than that 5%. That, that would be the top that you would be allowed to. And then they also submitted for the first-time homebuyer program um, in the amount of $100,000. Uh, we are estimating that we will have, we have not received the official allocation from HUD um, as to the exact dollar amount that we will receive for the 2022 grant. Um, and so we are basing all of these numbers that we will uh, are on an, an estimated amount of 405,000 is what will be available for your recommendation. As you can see, we received applications requesting in the amount of 490,000. So uh, we've created this spreadsheet here to help as you're going through your discussion. If you have some suggestions, we can fill in numbers in these and you can instantly see how much is left and able to allocate. Um, we do have, uh, before the actual discussion on the uh, recommendations take place, we will have uh, several of the board members will have to recuse themselves. Um, and so they will be required to uh, shut their video off. They can remain and listen. Um, they do have uh, representatives here from their agencies to speak towards their application if you do have questions. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started, uh, open it up to if you just have any general questions about the procedure, um, and we'll go ahead and ask those board members to recuse themselves. This is Rebecca Buford with Tenants to Homeowners. And um, if you guys don't have any other questions, I will recuse myself. Um, and Nicholas Ward is on the call um, if you have any questions about our request. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. And uh, similarly, this is Shannon Owry with the Housing Authority. I will recuse myself. I believe Galal Obeid is on the line for us. Thank you, Shannon. All right, I think that puts us in a position where we can talk about uh, this Monty soak up chair, <laughs> where we can talk about the uh, recommendations here. Um, I assume everybody had a chance to look over this. Um, any thoughts or comments by anyone? Okay, seeing none, I'm going to, oh, go ahead, Ron. Um, Mr. Chairman, it looks like we've got um, 
$85,000 requested that we don't have funds for if we do the CHODO set aside at the required 15% and the CHODO operating funds at the 5% minimum. Um, so I, I'm going to recommend, so we've got $85,000 we need to cut out of the request. Um, transitional housing request is 300. Uh, we had them at 250 last year. Uh, the first time home buyer, buyers program last year was um, 61,000. I'm sorry, 84,000 last year. Um, it strikes me that the transitional housing, the TBRA program is one in most need of stability of its funding. So I would, I would make a recommendation that we continue the funding level for another year at 250,000. And then that would um, put the balance of the burden for um, um, balancing up this budget on the first time home buyer program, which would bring it all the way down to $35,000. A $35,000 cut down to $65,000, which is a cut from where they were last year um, of um, about $19,000 about $20,000. And and that'd be my recommendation. Okay, thank you. I'm gonna open that up for discussion. Dana? Yeah, thank you. Um, especially critical after we just heard from um, Corporation of Housing, Supportive Housing. Um, the transitional voucher, the TBRA and its various iterations in our community is, is one of the most effective outcome-based um, voucher programs that the clients and guests of family promise utilize, as well as other chronically homeless. It, it allows a lower level of acceptability rather than the long wait list of a Section 8 voucher. And it requires some of that supportive housing services for the period of two years. So only certain referring agencies can refer to these vouchers, and then they're required by an MOU to support those vouchers for a period. Now, anyone who successfully completes that voucher program after two years can roll over to a Section 8 voucher. So it has a plan attached to it. It has requirements for support attached to it. And I just wanted to speak that very clearly out because I know the whole voucher thing gets very complicated and confusing. Thank you. Uh, Dana Ortiz, Family Promise of Lawrence. Yeah, that's Monty Sokopchir. Thank you, Dana. As And as I recall, this number sticks in my head, but that had like a 80, 85% success rate or something of keeping people housed, as I recall from the report, maybe a couple of years ago, even. But yeah, I, I know it's high. It's high. I don't know yeah. what it is currently. It's the same line. That's, that's from my memory. So, but it was really high. I was impressed with how high it was. So, um, Edith Guffey, a member at large. And, you know, I really detest having to pit these two organizations against each other. Um, because they both do really excellent work. 
Um, so let me let me say that to begin with. Um, so it seems like robbing Peter to pay Paul. And um, so that's where I begin. Uh, but I, I really don't support uh, that big of a cut to the request uh, for the first time home buyer program. That's a pretty big jump. And to uh, just for the purposes of keeping uh, the TIBA program level, um, everybody's in need. Everybody's in need. And so that big of a cut, you know, I would go to, you know, 85,000 uh, that, so that they both take some big, somewhat of a hit and not just one program takes the hit. This is Shannon Reed, um, Douglas County Commissioner. Uh, I would agree with um, Edith's sentiments. I don't um, like knocking down the first time home buyer, buyer program that much. 80, almost 85, basically 85 is what we um, approved last year. So, I mean, to me, it seems like where there's room to bring it down is the CHDO operating funds, which are capped at 5%. Um, I don't know, you know, I mean, because tenants to homeowners application was all of those things together and they all kind of function together right and the way they report on them um they those weren't three distinct applications necessarily however they do fund different things so i guess i'm just wondering what other board members thoughts are about bringing significantly i don't really have a specific number but bringing that um operating funds number down which is the one that can move um as i understand it Monty Sogup Chair. Uh, Shannon, last year, for reference, uh, the Chota Operating Fund allocation was $20,000. We did that last year and brought that down to twenty, dollars uh, And that would make, you know, you could make the first time home buyer program $67,500 at that point. I don't know what, I'm not sure what that does. Yeah. <laughs> it's all going to tennis to homeowners. Um, but, uh, you know, I might, I guess I might be more in favor of like, uh, you know, 240 for TBRA and add that $10,000 the first time home buyer as a balancing of some kind that, that cuts $10,000 out of each basically uh, from what they got last year. Um, proportionally, that's a little bit harder cut for tennis to homeowners than TBRA proportionally, but I'd be comfortable at, at that level, I think. I don't, again, I'm with Edith, it's, it's like it's a terrible decision to have to make, but that's what we're tasked with, so. Do we, is there any consensus around that? Is that everybody feel equally bad? <laughs> about, <laughs> about this is Reed again. Uh, I think that's fair. I mean that it's to, I, that's a um, fair application of the uh, circumstances we have before us. The ten thousand um, dollars off of those total amounts from last year. I guess I'm still I'm 
curious if other folks, um, especially those with some um, longer history on this board than myself, I mean, I can see the numbers, but just um, opinions or thoughts about that, um, the operating funds line in particular for tenants to homeowners and the impact um, of bringing that number down to in order to fund the first time home home buyer program a little bit stronger i i mean as has been said both programs have such value and in different ways and we've had a lot of conversations in my time on this board about the types of programs and projects that have been funding that are linked to services or involve services um these are both examples of that but to varying degrees and we I mean, with the current real estate market in particular, like the the access for first-time home buyers to actual properties, that gap is shrinking and shrinking by the day. Um, it's pretty intense right now. I think we all know that, and there's all these pressures on it. So I that program to me is really important to want to maintain as strong as possible because it's really the one thing that helps people transition and that might eventually kind of even out the scales of how many renters we have in perpetuity that can't gain that wealth and how many home buyers we have people that can keep moving up and building that for their for their families so that that's my stream of consciousness out loud about it any feedback about the operating funds line and the impact of that would be helpful for me this is Sarah Waters at KU. I wonder if Nicholas Ward could maybe speak to that and what happens if the operating fund line is reduced. Don't know if that's possible. I know he's on the call and if that would help for context, Shannon. Um, this is Nicholas Ward. I am, I am on the call. Can you all hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. I think, yeah, I understand the predicament, right? That we're, that we're always in, in these situations and everything should be funded to the full extent of course, because the need is expressed and it's present in our community. I think for us, it comes down to how the funds are able to be utilized and what types of flexibilities are inside of those funds based on um, the restrictions that are within them. So, um, for us, if if something's going to be cut by an amount, uh, we would we would take that cut in first time homebuyer program. And the reason for that is is that our Chodo operating funds are more flexible. And so, if we needed to use a little bit of those operating funds as first time homebuyer dollars, we can do that. But we can't go the other way around and utilize uh, the first time homebuyer funds in a flexible way. And so, if that makes sense. Um, we're always prioritizing, of course, these market acquisitions or subsidizing the housing that we're building so people can get into them at a lower rate. Um, but th that would be the priority would be then to take uh, some kind of a cut in the first time home buyer program if that had to happen and not in operating funds. I hope that's helpful. Uh, this is Shannon Reed again. That's very helpful. Thank you, yeah. Nicholas. Um, and thanks, Sarah, for that suggestion. I. Um, I mean, I'd still like to hear feedback of other board members um, in response to that. But given that feedback, I mean, I would suggest then is leaving the 22,500 for the operating funds, which would then put it back, you know, 75 
um, for right. the first time home buyer program, which gets us back to that what Monty had suggested, kind of shaving ten thousand off of each from what we allocated last year, yeah. seems as equitable as possible. Yeah, his, historically, I'm mean, looking just at the spreadsheet that uh, Brad provided, and, and last year we provided almost eighty-five thousand to uh, home buyer. The year before it was 62,000, the year before 72,000. So we're not really back creeping that far for whatever that's worth historically. Um, and I think Ron had Ron had his hand up. And I, yeah, um, I, I was going to, um, none of the proposals yet have had a voice of a second. And I was going to second this proposal uh, it's very near what I had uh, originally suggested as a set of numbers. The difference is um, a, the $10,000 cut to a TBRA uh, from last year's funding. Um, I, I, you know, that's not a big cut. I like being able to maintain a steady source of funds for this application. I view that as pretty darn steady. And uh, and anyway, I like I like the way this splits out here right now. Uh, I do have one uh, question, other question though for Nick. Could he give us the same kind of level of explanation for the set aside project funds? Are those flexible also in some ways? Uh, how do those dollars get used? Yep. Thank you, Ron. This is Nicholas Ward with Tenants to Homeowners again. Um, so the, the the project funds themselves are just the way that we function as a Chodo. We utilize that for um, the development of, of sites that we're working at. And so um, I think right now we have, if I'm reading my notes right, that there's um, 15, 15 different units we have across um, or another 15 sites um, that we have the ability to develop at. And the thing that's lacking or stopping us from the development is just the, the availability of funding right now. And so that's along with other grants that we're, we're pulling and other, um, other avenues of funding. That's, that's what allows us to do that initial construction on some of those sites. And so um, that's, it's really necessary if we're going to be putting new permanently affordable housing units um, into the hands of folks that, that need that resource. Thank you, Nicholas. I am uh, feeling a consensus here. So I'm just procedurally, Shannon, would you make a motion to uh, for this home recommendation? And then I think Ron would be gracious and second it, and then we can take a vote. Unless, yep, Okay, this is Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission. Uh, I move to approve the 2022 home funding recommendations as follows. 240,000 for the transitional housing TBRA program, 67,500 for the CHDO set aside project funds, 22,500 for the CHDO operating funds and 75,000 for the first time home buyer program the total of $405,000 allocated. Thank you, Shannon. Ron, 
Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative, I second that motion. All right, thank you. We have a motion and seconded. Is there any discussion, further discussion? All right, seeing none, I will take the roll. Thomas Allen. Yeah, approved. Uh, Shannon Reed. Approve. Sarah Waters. Approve. Erica Zimmerman. Approve. Dana Ortiz. Approve. Ron Gacious. Approve. Edith Guppy. Approved. Monty Soka, approved. Motion passes 8-0. Thank you everyone for your thoughtful consideration of that. Uh, we're gonna move on to the, the next item. It's capital improvement plan submission and support of housing development. So um, since the last meeting, as you guys all know, we saw, uh, we had a little bit of discussion on the Going South uh, project, which is the uh, Saab construction. Um, and since that, uh, both Leah, I think myself, maybe Ron, a few other people have, uh, maybe Rebecca, I'm not sure. Oh, and thank you for coming back, Shannon and Rebecca. Um, have had discussions with multiple people, including uh, including Frank Saab with Saab Construction and uh, some of the city commissioners. And, uh, I, there's, I think there's still opportunity there. So there's a couple pieces that that kind of come up there. One is um, with the with the going south project, the street extension, and uh, a capital improvement process that's coming up within the city that approves capital projects uh, for for city improvements. So there's a process there that could request potentially request funding. Obviously, we don't control any of that. But um, as we talked about this and the willingness of uh, Saab Construction to continue to talk with us about how this possibly could provide affordable housing has gone forward, um, I guess we thought it would be good that maybe this board make a recommendation uh, to the city and county staff to continue to work with Saab Construction to determine if there's a way that uh, affordable housing trust funds and or city county CIP funds can be utilized in a way that will provide opportunities for affordable housing. I don't think we're committing to any, we're not committing any funds. It's just a recommendation to continue to work with this, uh, this uh, company and other, you know, ultimately I think we, if we had other opportunities like this that we continue to work this as long as uh, you know, there's a, there is a benefit to affordable housing. Uh, and to me, that would look like, uh, you know, lots available to purchase at or below market or lots gifted or whatever. I don't know what it looks like yet. Um, but that in combination with a potential CIP, uh, if the city found that there was value in spending CIP dollars simply to create lots in the city because of a lack of, you know, availability a lot, period. Uh, so I wanted to, I guess I want to open up for discussion on thoughts about that. And if you guys think that a recommendation is appropriate. 
Go ahead, Dana. Thank you, Mr. President. Dana Ortiz, Family Promise of Lawrence. I want to speak just briefly setting this kind of conversation up for something Edith kindly reminds us of over and over again, and that is getting the word out at, about this opportunity and affordable housing and potential funding. Just in the last uh, two weeks, I spoke to three different developers that didn't know about this. Um, and so it was, yeah, so it was an interesting conversation. It was unrelated to affordable housing, but related to Family Promise. And the conversation, of course, with Family Promise is always about housing. It goes in that direction. So I, I would like us to also think about when we have our retreat to how can we get our message out there more clearly about one, the needs, and these needs assessment studies will help us have credibility with that story. But also, how do we get it beyond beyond our current interest levels? Thank you, Monty. So, Chair, that's a good point. Um, I also had a conversation with another uh, developer this week. Actually, uh, a couple of weeks ago, when the Gerber property was trying to be annexed, I called the engineer for that project and said. Uh, you know, I'm probably going to speak against this annexation because I don't think we need a city park. We need affordable housing. But um, and he called me back and said, I'm interested in learning how we can get your recommendation for a project. And uh, this week or last week, he actually connected me with a another a different developer that he's working with uh, that uh, we had a really great conversation uh, about what that opportunity might look like. Um, so again, I, I'm with you. I think we need to get, in my mind, if we could get one project with a private developer under our belt where we got whatever it was, we get a lots available to us or whatever, lots into the uh, Chodo. Um, I think the word will get out pretty quick among developers that there's an opportunity there. So. And I know Tenants to Homeowners has done some of that in the past. One of the developers is somebody that they were proud about speaking with their partnership with Tenants to Homeowners with, and telling me all about it. And so I think we really do have a model here that we could advertise to with private, private involvement with nonprofits. It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, I wanted to just ask if Rebecca Boofer might have an opportunity to talk about the Holcomb property that's also on the list as we're discussing the CIP. And Ms. Ortiz, not to um, take it, it, not to disregard your comment, I wrote that down as a note for the retreat, but in the interest of time, I'm wondering if we could focus on the CIP submission and if the board wishes to make a move to um, submit a project on behalf of the AHAB. This is Rebecca with Tenants to Homeowners. Um, Leah asked, we are looking at, we as in the community really, all these partners, a, a possible um, project would be that Holcomb land that I think Diane um, had on that list that she presented to us of, of 
kind of potential land out there um, that was a city owned, but that the city was talking to the school district or um, it, so it's school district owned. And we all know the school district could use some resources right now. So um, it may be very timely um, and requesting CIP dollars to be able to buy that. I think they've gotten a it is um, gosh, and I'm going to forget the acreage, but um, Monty D or, or Leah, do you guys do, does almost. anyone remember the acreage on that? It's almost nine. Yeah. Almost nine. Almost and nine the, acres. So a very the, significant um, plot of, you know, very good land, very good location right by Holcomb Park and the, the recreation center, the baseball diamonds there. It's nice because it's got single family. It's got rental. It's got it's kind of in a nice neighborhood of mixed types of housing um, and mixed incomes, but it also is, um, of course, has amenities with uh, for families and um, it and is west, you know, relatively more west than um, west of Iowa. So, uh, you know, Monty and has been talking about, we just need a signature project that we can point to the trust funds having created really a development of affordable housing, a spectrum of affordable where we could just as um, was spoken to earlier, a percentage of um, supportive service housing, a percentage of affordable rental housing, a percentage of home ownership, first time home buyer housing, um, that all of us all of us partners could be involved in. Um, and so I think that's a real opportunity. I know the school district offer said, if you guys could give us a million, we'd take it in a minute. And I think that was at that point, it was kind of like we'd take less too. Again, I, I called them a couple days ago and asked and he said, well, we had it. Um, we had an appraisal done and it was at a million. So, um, you know, he wasn't offering less at that point, but, you know, they never do. So <laughs> um, I do think we, you know, could ask for a certain amount, 850000 from CIP to buy those nine acres and really make it, make a project um, and, you know, assume that we, that almost everyone could be involved in different pieces of that affordable housing units. Um so I, I think that's a potential ask too that we need to be, you know, asking CIP in this moment for that. And I think then home ARPA funds and other kinds of funding, without, you know, publicly saying we're going to use that, but there's a, a bunch of different types of funding that we could use for different types of housing in a project like that. Leah, did that cover what you wanted me to? Yeah. Okay, hold on. Uh, Shannon, and then I'll get to you, Edith. Okay. okay, so I, I just want to make sure what where we're headed. So this would be a recommendation that the purchase of that property be included in the CIP. And then at that point, the city owns it, and the possibility would be through an RFP or something various people who want to de uh, develop affordable housing could submit applications to the city for that project. Is that is that where we're headed? 
Uh, Monty Sokup Chair, I, you know, I'm not sure exactly where we're headed yet. I was thinking that it would go into the, the Chodo somehow, whether the city bought it and placed it there, which I believe they can do, um, or whether the Chodo actually bought it, you know, the funds came through the Chodo and, and that was purchased that way. I'm not sure legally how that all occurs. What I know is we probably need to try to get that piece of ground, or what I think we should do is try to get that piece of ground under our control. Uh, obviously, we need to figure out the logistics and how that all works. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Just to clarify, with the CIP, um, that request is for um, uh, projects that, it, in, that need repairs or improvements to infrastructure. And so um, the CIP request for the Holcomb property would be for the infrastructure. And according to the memo that um, Assistant City Manager Diane Stoddard presented to the AHAB in 2021, um, the infrastructure costs for that site are between 350 and 400,000 uh, to bring utilities to the site, including connecting a water line and establishing stormwater and sewer connections. Um, so that would be the specific CIP request. And then we would also need to have discussion on purchasing the property and the ownership of that property. So we may need to use trust fund dollars to purchase the property is one thing, or it could be ARPA funds or some other funding source that's available, as I understand it. Mr. Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission, thanks. Um, Leah, for that, I'm wondering, do we know, and I'm sorry if I missed it in earlier conversation, um, any conversations with the school district yet about what a, even a ballpark of purchase price for that size of that piece of land would be? Do we even, do we have a sense of that? And I missed it, the number maybe. <laughs> sorry if, if you said it, Rebecca, and I missed it. This Monty's soak up chair. I think Rebecca was between a million and eight hundred and a million. Okay, thank you. Somewhere in there, it's kind of the ballpark idea. Hi, Shannon. This is Rebecca with Tennis Delmars. We didn't really make an offer, so I, and they kind of said, you know, make us an offer. So I feel like um, there is some weight. No one said we need this amount. That helps. Thank you. Yeah, this is Monty Sokupchir. Also, as a state entity, they're going to have some restrictions on what they can do. Uh, <laughs> we all get that, right? Uh, so I guess here, uh, let me, are there any other comments? Anybody got something on their mind they want to share? Okay, go ahead, Edith. I just know that we have talked for a while about being more aggressive and not just sitting around and waiting for projects to come to us, which is what we've done for the last, I don't know how many years. <laughs> and um, this is a time for us to, I mean, how many more years are we gonna sit around and talk about the need for affordable housing and not do something different mm -hmm. that might, I mean, the, the uh, example of idiocy is just sitting around and doing the same thing over and over and over again. This is an opportunity to do something different, more aggressive that might make a difference in how we operate. And I hope we'll take the opportunity. You're here. Ron, go ahead. 
In keeping with Edith's enthusiasm for being proactive, I'd like to make a motion. Um, my motion is that the city set aside $500,000 in the capital improvement plan funds to be used exclusively in support of an affordable housing uh, affordable housing project to be presented to the city by Ahab no later than December 1 of this year. And that gives us an opportunity to pursue the Holcomb project perhaps to um, have further conversations with Mr. Saab, or also reach out to other developers and home builders that might have expressed an interest recently and can come together in the next couple of months and bring us some, um, some good examples of how this CIP dollars could be used. I have a lot of heart for this. I think there's a real opportunity here. I think at least a couple of the city commissioners have sent signals to us that, you know, the doors open a crack and we'd really like to see you guys, you know, show us how we can be supportive of affordable housing. And, um, you know, we, we kind of got caught up short this year by coming in towards the end of the, the cycle. I think the city commission's getting ready to make uh, decisions on these recommendations very shortly. So we don't have the pleasure of waiting till next month's uh, meeting to make a, a recommendation. So my, uh, I think I said, what, $500,000 uh, to be set aside in the CIP budget for affordable housing recommendations to come from AHAB no later than December 1st. All right. Shannon Alry, Housing Authority, I second that motion. All right. So we have a motion and a second on the floor. Is there any further discussion on that? This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Just, just to clarify, so the CIP application is due March 22nd. And so it, I, if I could get clarity on the original motion, it sounds like to me like the motion is not to submit a CIP application on behalf of the AHAB, but to um, what would the alternative process be with that December 1st deadline if we're not submitting a CIP application? Well, but uh, my 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 motion is that they put a line item in the CIP of five hundred thousand dollars for an AHAB project or projects to be determined to to be recommended to them no later than December first. So the way I understand that, Ron, you correct me if I mistake. We do want to put an application for half a million dollars. Absolutely. For a project to be defined by December 1st. Yes, yes. Which is probably abnormal. <laughs> Absolutely. In every way. Yeah. Let's go get our toes wet and see if something works. All right. Any other discussion, clarification? Everybody understand that? All right. I am going to take the roll then. Uh, Thomas Allen. I, I approve. Shannon Reed. Yes. Rebecca Buford. Approve. Sarah Waters. Approve. Erica Zimmerman. Approve. Dana Ortiz. Yes. Shannon Auri. Approve. Ron Gacious. Approve. Edith Guffey. 
Approve. Monty Soka, approve. Motion passes 10-0. All right. Thank you everybody for that. We got a couple minutes here. Um, the next item on is to consider formalizing a cycle for out of uh, out of cycle, a process for out of cycle uh, requests. I'm not sure we're going to have enough time to cover this today because I think this takes a little more conversation than five minutes or so. Uh, I'm going to suggest that we table this till next month. Everybody okay with that? Do we need, yeah, do we need to take a vote to table something? Okay, excellent. Then we'll move on to, thank you, for staff updates. Uh, so Leah, I'm going to turn it over to you for the staff updates. Thank you, Mr. Chair. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. I wanted to make a quick note that the quick update section is now labeled staff updates to reflect the content being shared. And moving forward, I'll use this opportunity to keep the AHAP updated on affordable housing related projects and updates. Please note that I have not included summaries of committee meetings or community engagement updates at this time, but I'm happy to include that content in the future if the AHAP would like to receive those updates. Um, the first item is the monthly financial report. We collected a little over 91,000 in affordable housing trust fund sales tax in February. No change on the expense side and we anticipate meeting budgeted revenue. The second item, staff is looking at developing an affordable housing pathways prop, uh, program to provide incentives and additional guidance for developing affordable housing. We will keep the AHAB updated as we make progress and we'll invite feedback and AHAB participation as we move through the process. Please send me any ideas or feedback you have that may be beneficial for that project. Um, item number three, all affordable housing trust fund agreements have been fully executed. All fund recipients have received their signed agreements and reporting guidelines. Reports will be made quarterly and will be shared with the AHAB to monitor progress. Item number four, the Tenants to Homeowners Hyper, Harper 7 project was approved by the City Commission at their March 1st meeting and the agreement is forthcoming after legal review and approval. Um, and then the final item is uh, staff met with legal to discuss creating a revolving loan program for affordable housing development using trust fund dollars for the startup. In the upcoming months, I will be looking at Pier City affordable housing loan programs and starting to develop processes and procedures for that. So please send me any ideas or feedback that you have that may be beneficial for this project. I also wanted to make a quick note um, that there is going to be an affordable housing forum at the Lawrence Public Library on Monday, April 4th at 5.30 that the Lawrence Public Library is hosting if um, anybody would like to participate that and that. And then just to circle back on the Burt Nash Supportive Housing Project, um, if any AHAB members would like Burt Nash to present um, at the April meeting, I'm happy to invite them. Thank you. Mr. Chair. This is Sarah Waters. I have a quick question for Leah. Is there an update on the Home Builders Association rep to this group? Because I think that person might have been pretty critical to some of the conversations today. So just wondering if there's a status update. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. The Home Builders Association um, did nominate a representative and that has gone to the mayor for review and approval, um, but that approval and nomination has not been made yet. 
Um, I, I spoke with Mayor Shipley last month, and she stated that she believes that a nomination will be uh, will be made shortly, but it has not been approved yet. This is Shannon Reed, uh, Douglas County Commissioner. I thanks for that question, Sarah. I had the same one, and. I, would really like somebody um, hopefully in that seat by the time we have our retreat because it is such a critical piece of the conversation that has been um, notably missing, I think. Uh, and then I also just wanted to say that I was sad to miss last month's meeting, but very excited to see the, the Harper 7 project, as we're calling it, move forward. I had um, look, went to that open house just because that plot of land was always so odd to me over there um, and immediately was like, oh, this needs a density bonus. <laughs> you can build a lot of houses here. So thank you, Rebecca, um, for seeing that vision and bringing that. Um, and I'm glad that everybody here pushed that forward. That was a good example of opportunity was in front of us. Um, there are tools to make it happen and we made it happen. So grateful for that. Thanks. And about, oh, Leah, you asked about Burt Nash folks coming. I think that that could be useful, although I'm wondering how heavy our April agenda may be already. Maybe you don't know that, but just considering that we're pushing um, the conversation from today until then, um, and just wanting to make sure we are mindful of how crowded our agenda might get. Thank you, everybody. Uh, that is the end of the updates, correct, Leah? Okay, any other new business? Oh, Rebecca? Monty, sorry. <laughs> this is Rebecca with Tenants to Homeowners. Um, Leah, I'm wondering, and I, I agree with Shannon, it might, our April meeting might be too full, but I do think actually maybe Bert Nash and Dana to talk about fam what Family Promise does, Eric and I could just mention what kind of support services are with ownership programs. And I mean, I do, I, I was a little, I know it's just so hard to know about everybody's silo, but it does feel like this group should really know what a day is like for the agencies that are doing most of this work. Um, and what does that really look like? You know, Ron had a great question. And it, it, some of that is you just have to hear an example of what that stuff is. You know, when we talk about support services, it's not, it's generic and not well-defined. You know, and of course it depends on the people we're working with, but there's a good list of the kinds of things we consistently have to deal with or, or do to keep people uh, successful in housing. And these are folks that are not, you know, I mean, have some skill sets that are missing or have challenges with those. And, and so you do, if you haven't worked in those fields before, you don't think about those things because a lot of us are lucky enough to not have struggled with those barriers. But I, so I think presenting some of that would be really helpful for this board at some point, even if it's 10 or 15 minutes of examples. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Rebecca. We'll get April for that. Any other new business? Okay, uh, I'm gonna let you read the calendar. I'm not gonna read that to you. Um, and then uh, I would accept a motion to adjourn if there's no other comments. 
Move to adjourn. Ron Gacious, Chamber Representative, move, move to adjourn. Shannon Reed, second. Okay. Um, read the rule real quick. Thomas Allen? Yes. Shannon Reed? Yes. Rebecca Buford? Yes. Sarah Waters? Yes. Erica Zimmerman? Yes. <laughs> okay. Dana Ortiz? Yes. Shannon Howery? Yes. Ron Gacious? Yes. Keith Guppy? Yes. Monte Soka? Yes. Motion passes 10 0. Thank you for your time and thoughtfulness today. And we'll see you in a month if I don't talk to you before. <laughs>